You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. What does it look like to be a disciple of Christ? Models abound, but two perennial rivals are the active life and the contemplative life, the Martha and the Mary, or, as we might say today, the activist and the theologian. Both are ready to tally the weaknesses of the other. The activist doesn't care enough about doctrine. The theologian cares too much. The theologian isn't engaged enough with the world. The activist is a bit too engaged. The theologian thinks the activist shallow. The activist thinks the theologian sterile. Why can't these two just get along? Well, Kevin Van Hooser thinks they can. In his book, Faith Speaking Understanding, Van Hooser presents a dramatic model of Christian discipleship that shows the fundamental link between knowing and doing. The doctrine is the drama, as Sayers insisted, but it also should lead Christians toward their own dramatic performance, to act out the role of God's people in the history of redemption. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, Research Professor of Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and author of Faith Speaking Understanding, Performing the Drama of Doctrine. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Van Hooser. Thank you, David. It's good to be here, and uh, thanks for that uh, lovely introduction to the book. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I, I, I hope that it helps kind of set up some uh, some themes that you, you you had in there, and they'll they'll develop as our conversation progresses. Uh, first, though, I do think I should note that you're known mainly, uh, well, not mainly, but among other things, you're known for writing enormous books that uh, excite theologians. Uh, this one is smaller, and it seems to be aimed at a different audience than, say, remythologizing theology was. I, I only got about a quarter of the way through that one before the interlibrary loan period was done. <laughs> Anyway, uh, this book, at least seems to me, uh, it seems like a shift of focus from your previous work. Is, is, am, I, am I catching on something that's there, or am I making too much of it? No, I think you see something that's there. I had uh, written an earlier book uh, on a similar topic called The Drama of Doctrine, and it was a big book, as you say, <laughs> and it's also uh, bright orange, and so because of the size and the color, uh, in my family, I referred to it as the Great Pumpkin. <laughs> You're right. Compared to the predecessor, the book we're talking about today, Faith Speaking Understanding, is uh, what I call in my family a lesser parsnip. <laughs> and not, not just smaller, but it's purposely written for everyday Christians. So we're into root vegetables here, and I see this book as a root vegetable for the salt of the earth. You know, everyday Christians. <laughs> I've had publishers, you know, try to convince me to write short books, and I remember one sitting across the table, looking into my eyes, speaking very slowly as if I were an eight-year-old, and saying, the larger the book, the fewer the sales. <laughs> I typically nod politely when I hear things like that, and then I write the book that I think the subject matter demands. <laughs> so... But you're right. Uh, the other reason it's smaller, I, not only am I trying to write it for everyday uh, folk, but I am trying to bridge um, the divide you referred to in your opening remarks between theology and life, the academy and the church. And so uh, you may be interested to know that my next book is going to be even shorter than Faith Speaking Understanding. What? Um, it's called The Pastor as Public Theologian. And again, uh, the intent is to get people to read it, because uh, as you indicated, uh, library loans last only so long. <laughs> but everything I could to try to get people to read to the end, I said, you know, if you finish, I'll send you a T-shirt that says I survived. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, I guess it takes me a while to get warmed up, and I really do think that the best part of those big books are the second half. And so I'm as frustrated as anybody, you know, in a sense, at their length, because 
the second half, the one, the half people are less likely to get to, I think, is the best. <laughs> well, I, it, may, maybe maybe then this book is composed of of the 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 second halves of a couple of books. There's a way to look at it. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I do think we need to set a little bit of context. Uh, you you aren't and and the book you, you 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 make no pretense in the book of being the first to bring the terms of drama to bear on the task of theologizing. Mm-hmm. Could you take a few moments and sketch out theodramatics as a trope in theology and where your project fits in that landscape? Oh boy, how much time do we have? <laughs> the, this, the elevator version. <laughs> I'll give you the thumbnail version. You mentioned Dorothy Sayers, yes, uh, a figure on the margin of C.S. Lewis's group, The Inklings. Mm-hmm. And, oh boy, it was over 50 years ago, I think in the late 40s, she published a collection where she talks about Christian faith, and especially the Apostles' Creed, uh, as the greatest drama ever staged. Mm. And I think what she has in mind is that the Apostles' Creed uh, reads like high points of a drama, you know, crucified, dead, buried, things happening. Mm-hmm. Well, I love the counterintuitive boldness of her claim that there's nothing as exciting as the Orthodox creed of the Church. But um, as far as I can tell, her insights, uh, compellingly expressed as they were, didn't really go anywhere until, I don't know, 30, 40 years later when uh, a Swiss theologian, Hans Urs von Balthasar, uh, began writing a five-volume work called Theodrama. Mm. And uh, I don't know if Balthazar ever read Dorothy Sayers. I haven't actually tried to figure out if there is a connection there. But like Sayers, Balthazar was struck by the centrality of events. And so this five-volume set, Theodrama, it's all about Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. And one of the books is called The Action, and another book is called The Last Act. So he's thinking about Christology and soteriology in dramatic terms. And so that's been done. What I did in my earlier book, The Drama of Doctrine, is something that Balthazar himself never did, and that was to use the idea of drama as a way of explaining the nature of doctrine. So I argued that doctrine is direction for fitting participation in the theodrama. Hmm. So there's that. But, you know, um, I've actually spoken of the turn to drama that I see happening more broadly, uh, kind of a parallel to the turn to narrative in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you have a number of disciplines um, using theatrical terms. For example, Irving Goffman, a sociologist, writing The Presentation of the Self in Everyday Life. Mm -hmm. That was theatrical or dramatic. And I've actually read some people suggest that postmodernity itself moves from an emphasis on text to performance. Absolutely. So there there are a lot of interesting connections. But, But as far as precedent for my book, I have to mention my doctoral supervisor at Cambridge University, Nicholas Lash. When I was a doctoral student there, he read a paper that I've never forgotten, and it was called Performing the Scriptures. And he suggested that one of the most compelling ways we interpret the text is not to write commentaries about it, but to be a living commentary. Our life is our interpretation of the biblical text, if we think it's God's Word and authoritative. So um, I actually dedicated the big the big book, The uh, Great Pumpkin, to my doctoral supervisor. Uh, it took me, oh, 20 years, I think, to let his ideas percolate into my own thinking. But uh, So he his essay is quite well known. And then um, well, I can mention a couple of others. More recently... Uh, people have mentioned theodrama in uh, the context of Christian ethics. Um, that makes sense, right? Because mm-hmm. ethics is about doing. And so uh, one of my former students from the University of Edinburgh, 
uh, Sam Wells wrote a book uh, looking at improvisation and Christian ethics. Hmm. And then uh, a newer doctoral student has just published his dissertation. He's now a pastor, uh, Wesley Vanderlucht, and he has a book out called Living Theodrama. So that's probably the most recent book, I think, published just last year. So there's a little cottage industry uh, looking at connections, interesting connections between Christian theology and drama. That's exciting. Well, I guess we should delve into yours then. <laughs> in, uh, in the first part of this book, you define the terms of your project, and uh, in particular, you address some possible objections. So are there definitions and objections that you want to sort of let our, ris- our listeners know now so that this conversation is a muddle to them? And you know the questions that are coming, so you can, I, I think, better, better uh, guess what those might be. Uh, yes, yes. I've, I've presented these ideas in various places, and some questions come up quite a bit. Uh, so let me, let me make a few comments that might head off some misunderstandings. Uh, to begin with. So drama is a kind of story, but instead of being told like a narrative is, it gets acted out. But mm-hmm. as with other stories, it has a beginning and middle and an end and is performed on a stage. Now, the most important misunderstanding is my book is not about how churches should do dramas <laughs> during... <laughs> It's not about using skits to teach doctrine or to instill morals. Um, let's get that misunderstanding out of the way. It's, it's rather about helping disciples and churches to see themselves as caught up in a grand drama. Real life is dramatic. Uh, and so by theodrama, I simply have in mind the, the history of redemption that started with creation and climaxed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and and will come to an end, you know, at the last day. So that's the story. We're caught up. The story is not fictional. Uh, the history of redemption is dramatic. So that's the drama. It has a script. The scriptures, it even sounds like script, right? Mm-hmm. But the other misunderstanding is I, I don't want us to treat Scripture as a kind of blueprint. In other words, uh, I'm very interested in in being biblical, but I don't think it means, for example, dressing up in first-century Palestinian costumes and saying exactly what Peter said. No, I I see the script, or at least I I hold the script more loosely. Mm -hmm. It's not that the Bible gives us the exact lines to say, but it is the authorized record of the action that has already happened in the drama. And I believe it actually gives us some indication as to how the drama will end. So I'm thinking here then not of a, you know, a wooden kind of church performing the script, but rather the church is in a, in a very different scene. We're on the same stage, it's Earth, but we're in a very different scene than the New Testament uh, uh, writers were. And so I see uh, this drama is involved interactive theater and improvisation, and that's the drama of discipleship, figuring out how to follow Christ today in the way that Scripture indicates we should, but but not in a kind of uh, strict copying fashion. Uh, so we have to interpret, in a sense, our performance, the way we live, will be our interpretation. And so uh, what I say in the book is we need to learn to improvise, but with with the script in our hands. Mm. Um, now, uh, quickly, to get two possible objections out of the way, uh, some think that the theatrical model is just inappropriate. Uh, what am I doing as a theologian flirting with language and ideas from the theater? And uh, my concern is that I want to do justice to the subject matter of Christian faith. I don't want to 
impose something alien on the gospel. And what I think I'd like your listeners to know is that the most important reason I chose drama as a model is that I think it best accords to the subject matter of Christian faith. Hmm. Uh, Christianity isn't a system of ideas, it's not a philosophy, neither is it a moral system. Um, My understanding, and I think this is the Bible's own understanding, is that Christianity is about events, about God saying and doing something. Um, The only reason we have a gospel, good news, is because God has done something. And drama, the heart of drama, is about doing. The Greek word from which we get our English word drama is the verb drao, which simply means to do. So drama is a doing, and at the heart of Christianity is a divine doing, uh, a doing in Christ. So that's a, that's a, a very important objection to get out of the way. I don't think I'm imposing something alien on Scripture. I think I've discovered one metaphor, it's not the only one, but one that in a sense releases the subject matter, lets it be itself. And the other big objection and this is a, these are all fair points. The other big objection is, aren't I, aren't I doing the worst possible thing in the context of the Church? Aren't I encouraging hypocrisy? So, <laughs> don't we have enough hypocrisy in the Church already, unfortunately? Do, do we really need a theatrical model that talks about acting out the Christian faith? Isn't that encouraging hypocrisy? Again, I raise this objection. One thing I like about the dramatic model, in fact, is that it, it, um, it, it puts this objection in the spotlight, as it were. I have to face it. It's a good thing that I do. And my answer would be that, on the contrary, I'm not asking people to play-act their faith. Uh, the model encourages people to act out what I think is ultimate reality. It's, it's all about living out what is in Jesus Christ. And so I, I see this drama of discipleship as, a, as the challenge for disciples to get real, not to pretend to be something they're not, but to live out the reality of our being in Christ. That's a very important part of, of, of your whole project here when you say acting out being, um, because as, as in my reading of it, it seems that one of the most foundational concepts for your project is the way you approach ontology as an integration of being and saying and doing. Uh-huh. So can you unpack that? Right. Well, that's a good insight. Um, ontology is uh, it doesn't sound like an everyday Christian word, does it? It sounds like a kind of academic word. <laughs> but I think you're right, though. Uh, it, ontology is simply, you know, about being. It's about it's about real things, and it's about what real things are. And I think you're right in seeing a connection between being and saying and doing. In fact, what first got me excited about the theatrical model uh, is how it does help us overcome this theory-practice dichotomy, or what you were saying about the contemplative activist dichotomy, where some people are thinking, and other people are doing, and some are talking. I think what I appreciate about drama is that to say in a drama is to do, and as we know from proverbial wisdom, actions speak louder than words. So the whole being in a drama is a matter of speaking and acting. Um, that's also what I think uh, is happening, you know, in Christ. The Father is speaking in Christ, right? Christ is the Word, and He's doing things in this Word through the Spirit. So, and the way it all comes together, the where I see ontology fitting in is that it's communicative. Mm-hmm. I think God is a communicative being. God is always communicating who he is in word, in speech, in action. And 
I actually think that's what the Trinity is as well. And I think that human beings, because we're created in the image of God, we're also communicative agents. We, we express what we are and what we say and do. So there is something there. I, the book doesn't unpack it perhaps as much as it should, but I do think there is a kind of communicative ontology uh, that, that's, um, that's uh, at the bottom of it all, yes. What work does, uh, what work can a communicative approach to ontology do that, say, an Aristotelian metaphysic can't do, or the existentialist uh, existence precedes essence axiom? Because those, those seem to be kind of poles on either side of which maybe communicative, this, this communicative ontology is balanced. Right. There's also process ontology, but right. um, we have time to get into all of that. But So I think what it's doing is this. Uh, sometimes when people hear the word ontology and they try to think about God's being, uh, I think, you know, if they know anything about Aristotle and his substance ontology, they may be thinking of God as a big lump of Play-Doh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> substance. Or if they've really read uh, Aristotle, they may realize that God is a mind. The substance is mind, and this mind is thinking endless thoughts about itself. Um, well, uh, that doesn't say much about the identity of God, and I, I think a communicative ontology uh, that focuses on uh, being as communicating who and what we are, it does allow me to raise the question not only what, but who. Um, but on this view, uh, I see being as not a thing that's static, but as a kind of activity. But it's not Aristotle's uh, mind that's thinking thoughts about itself, because I, I believe God is, is Father, Son, and Spirit. So the activity in the Godhead is communicative. It's interpersonal and communicative. Hmm. Now, I, how do I know? <laughs> how do I know what's going on in the Godhead? <laughs> the, only, the only way I know, and I'm just following other Christian theologians here, the only way we can speak about what, what's happening in the Godhead is on the basis of revelation. Hmm. So I'm struck, for example, about how in the fourth gospel, in particular, there are long passages where the Son addresses the Father. And what I'm trying to do is extrapolate from Revelation, from what, what Scripture says about the Father and the Son, to what the divine being must be like. For example, uh, in John 17, Jesus speaks of the way in which the Father glorifies him, and he glorifies the Father. Uh, that passage uh, interests me because glorification is a very theatrical activity. Mm. But here, here's the point. I think the way the Father, Son, and Son show themselves to be in history, glorifying one another, is the way they are in eternity. Mm. So that leads me to think that in his own being, in his own perfect life, the triune God is this ceaseless communicative activity, this um, never-ending, loving exchange between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I should have said earlier that communication is it, much more than transferring information. Communication means making common, means sharing. And what can be shared is not just information, but uh, life. You know, we, we share lives through the sharing of information. We can share energy. And the end of all this communicative activity, the reason there is this activity in the first place, is, I think, communion. Hmm. So, so that, that, to me, is what my ontology does that Aristotle doesn't. It focuses on communicative activity for the sake of communion. And again, I, I only am able to say this on the basis of what I see in Scripture, 
characterizing the father-son spirit relationship. So uh, what's ultimately real then on my scheme is not an abstraction, it's not an idea of a perfect being, it's rather what we see revealed in Scripture, the uh, three-personed God in this communicative activity. So that's, that's the basic idea, that God does what God says, and God is what God does. So there's a fundamental harmony between what God is within God and how God acts in ways that we see um, recorded in recorded in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, uh, there is because otherwise it wouldn't be revelation. Right. Okay. We only know God because He who has seen the Son has seen the Father, and so. Uh, that that's the correlation. Jesus is the image of God. Right. That leads to the next thing that I want to bring up. On page uh, page eighty nine in chapter four, you're talking especially about this connection between God's acts in history and God's internal communicative being, and and the the congruence between them. You warn against thinking that quote, the dramas of the internal being of God and the external works of God. You warn against the idea that those dramas are numerically identical, for this would collapse eternity into what happens in time and fuse God's being without remainder into his historical becoming. So I wanted to raise the question, why is it important to see this internal and external drama as congruent but not identical? Okay, great question. Uh, this is, uh, this is um, you know, advanced theology, as it were. It's not easy to see why there is a problem. Mm. So, uh, on the one hand, as I've already said, we have to insist that the way God appears on the stage of world history, to the extent that it reveals God, does correspond to the way God really is. Otherwise, it would be a deception and not a revelation, Right. But on the other hand, you just said, you're right, I don't want to conflate God and eternity with God and time. Uh, One reason I don't want to do that is I think we lose the all-important distinction between creator and creation. In other words, we lose divine transcendence. If we don't have that distinction, if God doesn't transcend the world, then God gets caught up in the vagaries of the created order. So you see the tension there. We want it to be a revelation, but I don't simply want to erase divine transcendence and equate God full stop with what's happening in history. So the way I, the way I um, see the two, that is God and eternity and God and time, I see the economy, that is the outworking of the Father, Son, and Spirit's work, the economy is the dramatic representation in time of God's perfect life in himself. The, I think Plato said time is the moving, or time is the image of eternity, and I want to say that God in time is the moving image of God in eternity. Hmm. Uh, I'm following uh, in particular Fred Sanders at Biola University, who wrote a doctoral dissertation on this question, Hmm. and he entitled his uh, book, The Image of the Imminent Trinity. So I'm following in that line of thinking, but I'm just adding it's a moving image, because things are happening. So on the one hand, I think the Gospel requires us to see what happens in Jesus' life as elements in a plan conceived, as many biblical authors put it, before the foundation of the world. Because you see this particularly in Ephesians 1, Mm -hmm. where Paul says, we've been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So behind the good news is uh, the reality of God's own perfect life. That is, God for us presupposes God in himself. 
Now, the reason this is so important these days is that a number of theologians who want to celebrate the God of the Gospel have actually collapsed God's being into the Gospel events. Uh, I can name a number of contemporary theologians who have done that, uh, Robert Jensen, uh, for one. But in cases like that, then, the economy doesn't mirror or doesn't dramatically represent the imminent trinity, but the one simply collapses into the other. Okay, and so now to your question, why is that such a bad thing? I think the reason it's unfortunate is that if God in himself simply is uh, identified with the events of Jesus' life, then we have perhaps inadvertently inscribed conflict into God's very life. God mm. gets caught up you know, into things like crucifixion, and that ultimately subverts the good news. So my, I guess the short answer then, in order to preserve the integrity of the gospel, we have to preserve the integrity of the creator-feature distinction. And by the integrity of the gospel, you mean something like that the passion was something that required incarnation and was experienced by the Son, not, uh, not the Father in that sense? That if God is all in time, the crucifixion is something that all three persons endure in analogous ways? Yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. That's right. Uh, because uh, is good news really that the suffering God is for us, that the suffering God is going to share our suffering? No, I think the good news is through the suffering of the Son, we are able to share an eternal life that, that is not made up of suffering. Okay. Yeah, that's what I mean by the integrity of the Gospel. Okay. There's one... Uh and you've been you've been tracing this out and and for the most uh, for the most part and I, I i enjoyed this section a lot i'm i'm a fan of fred sanders even though i haven't read his bigger book i have read the deep things of god and right. and i enjoyed watching that um that congruence between inner trinitarian relations and you know the trinitarian processions and the trinitarian missions and history kind of being laid across each other but I did have one little question, which I've had ever since I, I read The Deep Things of God. Um, on page 81, you affirm the Western Christianity's filioque clause, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. So yes. if the external missions of the Trinity flow in some way from the essential processions of the Trinity, is the filioque clause clause important to understanding the Spirit's work? Do those work together in a way that you see in this model? So the little question is the question that has divided Christendom for a thousand years. Yes, I'd really like to know if we did that for a good reason. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, and this is not necessarily a hill I want to die on. I mean, I'd, I'd like to make peace on this hill. Oh, yo, you needn't. <laughs> But, but, uh, so I think the strongest statement uh, in favor of the filioque clause is uh, probably Jesus' statement in John 15 uh, about the Spirit being the one whom he, the Son, will send the disciples from the Father. Hmm. So it's, it's interesting that he, in, that, in John 15, Jesus does acknowledge that the Spirit of truth goes out from the Father, so that, that sounds like the East. But on the other hand, he clearly says that he, Jesus, will send the Spirit. And send is a theologically loaded word because that's the word that refers to the missions of Son and Spirit. Jesus says he's going to send the Spirit. Mm. And the filioque, then, is, is simply, um, you know, uh, pushing that idea back into the eternal procession, right? If, if the mm -hmm. mission of the Spirit depends upon Jesus sending, then that's the argument the West has used to argue that in the eternal life of God, the Spirit must also proceed from the Son as well. Now, uh, I do, I do uh, hold to it in the book 
But I also acknowledge it's a controversial doctrine, and I would be happy with trying to find a compromise formula by saying, you know, something like the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, but I do think it's important for us to do justice to Jesus' words in John 15. Hmm. But uh, what I think is at stake, well, there is something important that's at stake as well, because I think the primary work of the Spirit, as we see it in Scripture, is to minister Christ. Mm-hmm. The Spirit uh, ministers Christ first by speaking the truth of the Gospel, mm-hmm. and, and in, in John 16, Jesus says, the Spirit does not speak on His own, but only what He hears. And the speaking, the truth, uh, is to elicit faith, and it's that faith that... Um, again, thanks to the Spirit, unites believers to Christ. Uh, All that to say is, I I don't see the Spirit as, you know, a vigilante (laughs) person of (laughs) doing his own thing. I I sometimes use the image of power of attorney uh, to describe the Spirit's role. The Spirit, you see, never seems to represent his own interests. He Mm. always and only represents the interests of Christ. He's the giver of life because he unites us to Christ. In fact, it, it seems to me the Spirit's whole ministry is aimed at uh, communicating and glorifying Christ uh, and perfecting, yes, perfecting the work of the Trinity. I, I understand that as well. But the reason why I think this matters at present, there, there are people, commentators today, saying that we're living in a new age, uh, a post religious age, an age after faith, that is, after belief in creeds, they call it the age of the Spirit, or the age of spirituality. And uh, I, it may be true descriptively, but I think, I think it's wrong. I think it's misdirected, and I certainly think it's sub-evangelical, because the good news is not that we're spiritual, the good news in Scripture is that we're in Christ. <laughs> and in my view, and I believe this is the traditional Christian view, spiritual formation is the process by which the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, hmm. not some vague spirituality, again, as if there were something apart from Christ. No, spiritual formation is all about becoming like Christ. And uh, Paul says, that's the very thing for which the saints were predestined, hmm. uh, Romans eight twenty nine. The spirit of sonship. Yeah, exactly. The spirit of adoption. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose we'd better uh, shift on. We're we're running out of time. I'm watching it click away with <laughs> silent tears inside my head. Um, but still in chapter 4, uh, we've talked about how this drama flows from the being of God and into God's acts and history. So I think we ought to say something about the, uh, the genre and the structure of the drama of redemption. What kind of play do we find ourselves in? Yeah. Uh, well, in the book, I, I, I examine some uh, various possibilities, but I, I kind of come down and suggest that we're actually part of a courtroom drama. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people who watch television are very familiar with that genre. This one's a little different. But I, I'm thinking, for example, again, of the fourth gospel that mm-hmm. explicitly resembles a courtroom drama. Um, much of what goes on in the fourth gospel involves testimony, either words or deeds, and testimony to what? Well, the burning question throughout the Gospel is, who is Jesus? Is he the Messiah? Is he a rabble-rouser? Is he the Son of God? And so, uh, in the fourth Gospel, Jesus is literally put on trial, but uh, actually, I think it's the reader who's on trial. Will we uh, understand and judge the testimony correctly. Mm. So that trial motif also extends to the Old Testament, because throughout the whole history of Israel, you, I, you see that um, 
either Israel's putting God on trial or God puts Israel on trial. And the issue seems to be which side will end up being as good as, as, as is their word. And I think what's being, what's being tried, the drama, is all about covenant faithfulness. Hmm. Who is going to be faithful to the covenant, God or Israel? And uh, that is dramatic, and I think God uh, sends the prophets as prosecuting attorneys on his behalf. And then in Micah, there's actually the verse where he says, the Lord has a case against his people. Hmm. And then, of course, we have the whole book of Job, which is also very much like a trial. <laughs> you know, and the question is, uh, is he righteous or not? Is God faithful? So it is possible to see all of Scripture is a kind of courtroom drama. Um, I think a lot of people, though, looking perhaps from the outside of the Bible, might see the story, the drama, as a tragedy, because it seems to feature blood on the stage, the cross. Mm. But uh, Dante and the Christian tradition knew better, and I'm inclined to agree with them. We're actually in a divine comedy because it ends well. There's even a wedding at the end of this play, as in many Shakespeare plays. <laughs> uh, it's, it's what uh, the, Tolkien coined a word for this. Uh, you know, a tragedy features a catastrophe, a cataclysmic event where something horrible happens. Uh, uh, Tolkien, playing on the prefix to gospel, euangelion, which means the announcement of good news, Tolkien coined this term eucatastrophe, with that E-U in front, and that means it's about a cataclysmic event with an incredibly beneficial effect. And I think that's why throughout uh, the New Testament in particular, uh, apostles like Paul are able to play their parts with joy. You know, despite the fact that he's been beaten, despite the fact he ends up being in prison, he's joyful. And I think that's because he knows he's part of a divine comedy. He knows it's going to end well. Uh, again, in, in our secular world, I think of Nietzsche and Heidegger, and they thought that wisdom had to do with being towards death. But I think Christians in the theodrama know that wisdom is a matter of being towards resurrection. Uh, I'm not saying we put on happy faces. I'm not saying there won't be pain and suffering. I'm saying it's the next to last word. word. Uh, in the Christian drama, the overarching theme is the joy of forgiveness, it's renewed creation, it's resurrection, it's eternal life. So I have to say we're in a, in a, in a divine comedy. Excellent. So let's talk about the structure. Uh, eventually you settled on a five-act structure for this play that you're, um, I guess, reconstructing from, uh, from the, the drama of redemption in Scripture. And you also consider some, some other models for what the major acts and the plot points are in sacred history. So what is the model that you prefer do that others don't? And, you know, maybe toss some other models in the mix, like the medieval Seven Ages schema or... Uh, Schofield's chart of dispensations. I mean, there's lots of people who try to find the plot line in Scripture. Why the one that you settle on? Right, right. Uh, yeah, great question. It's a little bit like typologies, you know, when there's a, some a complicated phenomena, people come up with typologies, and the, the challenge is to try to identify the criteria by which people divide things into different types. And I think you're asking me to explain what criteria I have for dividing this unified drama of redemption into different parts or acts. Essentially, yeah. You mentioned the medieval Seven Ages scheme. Is that the one where uh, people just trace uh, progress of a life from infancy to adulthood to old age? Is that Seven Ages? Exactly. You see it in Augustine, you see it in Isidore of Seville. Um, so, uh, Bede constructs I'm, time that way. 
So okay. <laughs> it's pretty common. And obviously that makes sense if your scheme is biological. Ah. But I'm trying to do justice to a scheme that is redemptive historical. Okay. Uh, and now another venerable attempt to divide the various acts up is the dispensational scheme. But I guess my worry about the classic, at least the Scofield version of that, my, my big worry there is that it seems to me there may be two dramas according to that scheme. <laughs> One is ethnic Israel is the protagonist, and another drama in which the hero is the church. Uh, so I'm a little uncomfortable about that. Uh, on the other hand, one popular unified scenario is um, I associate with Abraham Kuyper and other Dutch neo-Calvinist thinkers. There's a three-part scenario, creation, fall, redemption. And I think that's useful uh, to some extent, but the problem that I have with that one <laughs> is that I, I don't think it does justice to inaugurated eschatology. That is, the already, not yet, that two-part last act. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that you'd have to unpack that. If someone were willing to unpack it into a four-part, that would be better. But uh, what I'm trying to do, and again, I don't claim to have a god point of view on this one, but uh, what I'm trying to do is, is to let the subject matter dictate the way I come to know it. I, I want to try to do justice to Scripture's own self-presentation. So I do divide uh, the one story into five acts, and my criterion is that each act is set in motion by an act of God, mm. uh, often a speech act. And that's why, on my model, unlike the neo-Calvinist model, the fall is not uh, an act of its own. Um, you see, because that's the, certainly the fall is not something that God initiates. So, on my five-part scheme, God initiates each of the acts. I also think that there is conflict in all five acts. That I think that's interesting. I don't need to you know, signal the fall. There's conflict in every act, and by conflict I mean there's opposition to God's Word in every act. Even the last act, um, the consummation, right? That's what the book of Revelation is about. A lot of conflict in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And even in the beginning, uh, before the fall, there's still conflict because you've got the serpent trying to deceive Eve. Uh, did God say, asks the serpent. And so in every act, there's conflict, which is, which is sort of fascinating. Anyway, the, um, the criteria I use are God's acts, five initiatives, creation, election, uh, and, by, and that election is, I'm thinking of the Abrahamic covenant that gets continued with some permutations through Moses and David and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, the sending of the Son. Fourth, the sending of the Spirit. And then fifthly, uh, the second coming of Christ. Mm. So I don't think my scheme is terribly different from Augustine, except I don't make the Noahic covenant into a distinct act. I move from creation to election, that is, the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. But again, I wouldn't want to... Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to step into a boxing ring with Augustine about this. <laughs> also, if I remember correctly, the the seven age schema uh, reckoned from uh, reckoned David uh, the Davidic kingship to be one as well, um, and so, but but I suppose that would be kind of a major subplot point under right <laughs> major right. plot arc two. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, some of these acts that I've included, they have scenes, to be sure, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes there's a, you know, you have to change the scenery, and so some significant things happen within each act. I, I don't know that I would want to say that the Davidic covenant is so different as to demand a different one, but, you know, these are intramural uh, disagreements, and again, <laughs> I don't think proxy is at stake, so... Uh, well... The model does work, and that's what it's supposed to do. (laughs) 
Well, I suppose we should shift to chapter five. Um, we're, well, and dear listeners, uh, we're not going to be able to finish the book. Um, go, go read it. This one's, this one's short. Uh, you should be able to finish it in the time the library will permit you. Um, also, it's affordable. So, so there's that too. But oh, as long as you're counting its uh, virtues, you might as well say that it was chosen by Christianity Today magazine as the theology book of the year. Ooh, I didn't know that. Ah, cool. I'll forgive for mentioning it. Awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, this this is in some way. Well, it's it's an academic conversation. It's also kind of a commercial, but an infomercial. We'll 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 say that. <laughs> A dramatic infomercial. Yes. <laughs> well, chapter five, I think, is where I would like to end today. And it's uh, chapter five entitled Learning and Becoming the Part. And you focus especially on our role as actors in this drama. In particular, big issues about the idea of human identity and human roles. So how is it that you come to define who we are and who we are to be in this story, because those definitions are things that our contemporary culture is all over the map with. Oh, I agree. Uh, identity politics, yes, identity struggles. Uh, the question of identity, how we, who we say we are and how we say it is huge. And I think in our culture, um, we try to define ourselves. Uh, we use academic degrees and achievements, right? You know, instead of asking who you are, we ask people what they do. And so we tend to conflate their identity with their achievements so that we are our careers. That's a frightening thought, I think. Um, <laughs> scripture actually says something very, very different. Um uh, and this is what I want to focus on as well. We are who God says we are. That's what defines us most deeply. We are who God says we are. Mm. And I think this is why Luther put so much stock in the doctrine of justification by faith, because justification by faith says that God declares us righteous. That's amazing. We're righteous because God says we're righteous. That's what Luther found to be so liberating. And in other words, we're justified by faith in what God says, rather than by our own efforts. Mm. And that still, I think, is a hugely liberating message from people, or for people who suffer from status anxiety. I think a lot of us today suffer from status anxiety. We have o OCD, obsessive comparative disorder. <laughs> We're always wondering how we stocked up and stand up next to the next person, and we're trying to put ourselves forward. That takes a lot of energy. And so I think Luther is right. It's, it's hugely significant and still countercultural to believe that that we're defined not by what we do, but by what Christ has done for us. Hmm. It's just that's the opposite of how our value is decided in our culture, which is a meritocracy, right? Job performance is everything in our culture. and But that's not what defines us at the most deepest level. So... I believe what defines us is who we are in Christ, how we stand in relation to Christ. That's what defines us. We're either outside Christ or we're in Christ. And I think the Gospel defines us, and the Gospel has a lot of indicatives. Uh, Paul says, you have been crucified and raised with Christ. That's an indicative definition of the saint. And um, so I think that, to me, is what defines us. And then the drama of discipleship is the drama of trying to act out who we truly are. Mm. And you'd think it'd be easy, right? You'd think it'd be easy to be who you really are, but I think a lot of us as disciples 
uh, maybe asleep to who we are. Maybe we've forgotten who we are in Christ. Or maybe we're in some kind of denial about it for some reason. Maybe we want to live the dream, the American dream, instead of the reality. But I think the reality of who we are is defined by how we stand in relation to Christ. And so our role in this drama flows from that. It's an assigned role. We don't get to sort of dib them, as it were. Well, at the deepest level, you know, we don't choose to be born. We're evoked. (laughs) We're evoked by God, and because we're evoked, we have vocations. We have callings from God. And I think that's what defines us more than our careers. Well, let's talk about putting on Christ. That's uh, one of the main ways that you talk about uh, how we how we act the role of disciples. Uh, we 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 dress up like Jesus. Yep. So you talk in particular about these models of, uh, especially models of developing virtue. Uh, models of developing Christ-likeness. And it seemed to me that you're trying to chart a kind of middle path between uh, Luther's rejection of a kind of mere imitation, and it seemed seemed to me that you were in dialogue, uh, especially with his um, On the Freedom of the Christian there. And then the the model of external virtue and... uh, a kind of Erasmian transformation through imitation, um, becoming through imitation on on the inside by behavior on the outside. So, yes. So on these poles, what is true that you're trying to preserve, and how are you trying to put them together? Yeah, that's a great question, and there is a tension there. We We want to be like Christ, and the question is, can we be like Christ simply by acting like Christ. Mm. Um, so how do we come to have the mind of Christ? And, and by mind, I mean not just his thoughts, but his dispositions, right? How do, we, how, do we, how do we come to have the reflexes of Christ? How does that come to be our second nature, as it were? Mm. Um, I think you're right about the spectrum of Luther and Erasmus. I think, I think Luther was right that we can't make ourselves like Christ simply through our mere efforts alone. I've already said, you know, we we just can't do that in and of ourselves. And furthermore, if one tried to do that, you end up with Pelagianism, right? Mm -hmm. You end up making yourself righteous through your own energies. And that's a heresy. (laughs) Why do we need a gospel if we can make ourselves righteous? On the other hand, um, I do think Erasmus was right in insisting that we have to make efforts. We're not going to mature into Christ simply by sitting put on a shelf like a, like a piece of cheese and then hoping we age well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, need, we need converting grace, and that's where Luther comes in. Um, we need to be raised from the dead, as it were, and re- we need to be renewed by the Spirit so that uh, we are new creatures in Christ. I think Luther gets that right. But we also need sanctifying grace, because uh, we have to become, in actuality, what we are on paper, as it were. That is, becoming like Christ is a lifelong, lifelong process, we, and we have to participate in it. We have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, and, I, and that's the part Erasmus gets right. So there's a tension here, and I, I think the tension, I think the way to capture it is to see that union with Christ is both a gift and a task. There's an indicative. We have died, been buried, and raised with Christ. Mm-hmm. That's the indicative. It's true. And, and there's also an imperative that, that is follows from that indicative. Because this is the case, now we have to go and, and act it out. So I think the tension is eschatological. There's an already aspect, 
but a not yet aspect. And I think it's tricky to understand this because we're, we're, we are speaking in indicative. You are in Christ. There's an is there, but it's an eschatological is. It's, so it's, a, it's an already not yet is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so we don't imitate Christ as if he were an external example. We imitate Christ because he indwells us. Uh, so here's how, I, here's how I put it. We have to act out our identity in Christ from the inside out. But we do have to act it out. Mm. So we have been remade in Christ. And a challenge, then, is to correspond outwardly to our new being. So that's why it's tricky. It's, it's a matter of acting out what is the case, but it is the case eschatologically. So we only have the first fruits, you see. Uh, we're becoming what we are. Hmm. Well, that's, a, that's an exciting idea. Yes. It should be an encouraging idea and an urgent idea as well as exciting. Yeah. But um, it is easy to get it. I think you're right to mention the Luther-Erasmus exchange because they each illustrate um, how easy it is to slip off this eschatological knife edge. Mm. Well, I don't want to get cut, so I'll, I'll just try to perch in this nice middle place. <laughs> Well, it grieves me that we don't have time to talk through more. Um, so to make up for it, I, I shall hand the reins own over to you for as much time as you would like to take in the time we have left. So what else in connection with the book, topics we've touched yeah. or we haven't, would you like to set before our listeners before we conclude? Uh, well, we, I think we've had a, a hearty discussion. Uh, n- not much froth or frosting, but a lot of meat and potatoes, so they <laughs> stayed for the second half. <laughs> but uh, if they did, I, I guess I had just two further points to make, and, and one is um, to help people see how there is something already dramatic about the way we do church, typically, mm. and I'm thinking particularly of the Lord's Supper. Mm. To me, uh, that is a summa of the gospel. It's a scene the Church rehearses and performs, and it's filled with theological significance. Um, what we do at the Lord's Supper is that we remember the events that are at the climax of the drama, but in remembering, we're actually acting out the reality of what is in Christ. That is, our unity. Hmm. We don't call it communion for nothing. So, in doing the Lord's Supper, very rich theological uh, activity, we're remembering, we're presently acting out what is the case, and then we're also rehearsing the future uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's a, I think that just, I wanted the reader, your listeners, to uh, just be aware that there is something very dramatic about the Lord's Supper, and that if you're still thinking, you know, or asking, how can theology be dramatic and drama be theological? Just think about the Lord's Supper. And the second thing I would want to say is that though we are all disciples, we've all been cast into this drama, uh, discipleship doesn't have to look exactly the same in all times and places. I mean, even in the New Testament, we see that the disciples are quite different from one another. Uh, think Peter, John, Paul, Timothy. They're all followers of Christ, but they're not all cut from the same cloth, as it were. And if that's true on the individual level, I wonder if it's also true at the denominational level. So what I want to suggest is that churches are theaters of the gospel, not just places, but when I say church, I mean the people, the gathered people mm. together are theaters of the gospel. That is, the people are the place where the reality of God's reconciliation in Christ gets lived out. Uh, that's why the creed says, 
we believe in the church and in the forgiveness of sins. To, to see the reality of forgiveness in the church is very powerful. But I guess the, the last thought I wanted to give along these lines is that just as there's no one way of doing discipleship, I don't think any one denomination or church has a monopoly on true performance or authentic discipleship. Uh, in the same way that no single theater company uh, can capture in one performance or exhaust the whole meaning of Shakespeare's King Lear or Romeo and Juliet. And I don't think that's a sad thing. I think that's a liberating thing. Discipleship is dramatic, and it's a privilege as well as a responsibility to go on following Jesus in the same way today, but differently. Excellent. Thank you for that, sir. Well, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a pleasure for me. I, I work hard on these books. I enjoy talking about their subjects. And uh, this one's still kind of new, so I haven't had too many opportunities to do so. So thank you. Well, I really appreciate uh, you coming on uh, to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Ben Hooser. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, a uh, chance to get to uh, talk through the topics in your book and uh, pick your brain about some questions that I'd had. Yeah, well, you know, it's clear to me that uh, you read with understanding because the questions reflect that. So thank you for your efforts. Well, I appreciate that, sir. Well, dear okay. listeners, uh, I hope that uh, you also have enjoyed this conversation. If you have any uh, comments that you'd like to make, post, uh, post them on uh, the show notes on the blog, christianhumanist.org, when uh, when the show notes appear. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, I'm David Grubbs. I've been your host this week. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Van Hooser and talking about his book, Faith, Speaking, Understanding, Performing the Drama of Doctrine. Christian Humanist Profiles is a podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.